It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. After a bit of a layoff, we're back with the Wheelhouse Podcast. It is episode number 61. We're recording this from the Ichiro Room at T-Mobile Park on Monday, December the 16th. Aaron Goldsmith, Jerry Depoto, Colin O'Keefe. Jerry, it's been a long time. I mean, you're normally like a pretty, you're a pretty tan guy to begin with. I wouldn't guess that you've been in San Diego for the weekend, but you look great. How was San Diego? How were the winter meetings? Actually, I feel pasty white. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't get out much. You know, it was a, it was a really quiet winter meetings for us, and it was a little rainy on day one, which uh, generally made us feel at home. But we, we went in expecting to be quiet. That's the way it worked out. We had a lot of internal discussions, meetings, uh, just generally trying to set up our systems and our programs. Uh, we weren't particularly engaged with, with all of the big activity in the market. So we, we actually found it very similarly entertaining to, to what a fan might as, as the, the big contracts and big names were rolling out. It was pretty fascinating. We'll be talking more about uh, some new faces who have joined the Mariners uh, over the course of this podcast. But also, uh, from a personal note, Jerry, you've done some international traveling since I last saw you. Can you tell us about it? Uh, I went to Hong Kong. I went to Hong Kong to visit my daughter, who lives over there now. Not the safest place on earth right now, but you know, I think uh, Hong Kong, it's an awesome city. It really is. My daughter's been over there now for about four years. We love visiting and awesome food, great restaurants. People are very nice. And and uh, she works for Disney over there, and she's having a, a great time at a time in her life when she should. The best thing that you ate in Hong Kong was? Oh, boy, line them up. Uh, I had the best pho that I've ever had, in, and it was in Hong Kong. Uh, it was phenomenal. Loved it. Learned how to make dumplings. Ooh, nice. I had video footage. Uh, we went to. How, uh, how did you learn how to make dumplings? So my daughter, as a gift, she took us to a cooking class, which I would say had more than a local flavor. We we went to a woman's apartment in central Hong Kong, and and she took me and my wife, my daughter and her boyfriend in, and spent three hours teaching us how to make dumplings. And uh, I was successful on two of the three ventures. I did not do great with the Japanese version, which is wrapped up, looks more like a fish. Uh, but general dumpling making, I, I think I passed with, I won't say flying colors, but some type of color. I mean, like there's like some like very minute f- and intricate folding and like crimping that go into this. I mean, that, that's, much crimping. Yes. There's a lot of crimping. I mean, going that, on. that's not easy, right? I mean, that's, that takes I found time. it challenging. Yeah. But I, I've, you know, bulky fingers that were not my friend. But, uh, you know, my wife, she she gravitated pretty quickly. We, we loved the exercise. And Felicity, who is the gal's name, uh, true story, was – and she has since developed a nice relationship with my daughter, and they go off to cooking classes all around the area. But – we, we went in and we stopped through a, a live wet market. We walked through a, a market and we bought all of the ingredients that we would use. And, and it was as fresh as it gets. And uh, she took us in and, and showed us authentic dumpling making. And I, it's, I hope, hope I never forget it. I've since practiced just one time. It was awesome. Now, a wet market compared to a dry market? Uh, yeah. You know, like, I mean, a dry market would be just like going to new seasons or QFC. It's okay. A, um, you know, this doesn't refer to market. like grains? <laughs> no. No, this is – I mean, you, you walk through the market and there's fresh vegetables, fruits, but meats from all over. And when I say meats, I mean it is it is fresh hanging on the hook meat. And it's uh, it was pretty unique. I, I, I loved it. It was, a, it was a life experience I won't forget. Did you do any work in Hong Kong? Uh, very little work. It was it was right about the time the World Series was going on. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of club-to-club interaction. We had already generally determined what we were going to do with our 40-man roster. So mostly quiet time. Interacted with Justin Hollander, our AGM, and Andy McKay, our, our director of PD. 
fairly frequently, but not a lot. And, you know, touch and go on the communication. So it was a nice trip just a week away. That's good, man. Hey, we don't want to bury the lead here, but we have to address the man who's not on the payroll anymore, who's actually here in the room. Our very own maestro, Colin O'Keefe. Colin, you are uh, stepping away from the Mariners after, uh, really, I truly truly mean this, like a a glorious run. You did a lot of fantastic things, both in the social realm and, of course, also uh, giving birth to this podcast that has become uh, really a well, something that is kind of one of a kind in the sports industry, but but you're moving on to your where you were previously. You got in a nice promotion, Colin. Tell us all about us and uh, how the heck you even got into the ballpark today. <laughs> Trevor Millis let me in from the uh, sixth level of the parking garage. So hopefully, you know, don't tell security. I don't have a pass on and everything. And I know that's gotten more uh, tighter than it used to be. But yeah, joining a company called Lexblog, I won't be a stranger to uh, the Mariners community. I'll still be around. Still be at the ballpark. 40 plus times every single year um but yeah just the right time to move on but it's been an absolute blast and you know thanks to you guys i know this will probably go on in some capacity but you know thanks to you guys thanks to you jerry for being open to these types of ideas aaron putting up with all my scheduling emails and swing it down doing things from all over the place but uh no it's been a, a, a ton of fun but i'm excited with where the the organization is headed and can't wait to to watch it as a fan i feel like this is Almost as great as Ichiro's send-off right now. I have two things <laughs> that come to mind. First, it is Colin who is clearly bronzed. He's, he's, he's been doing something with, with the skin tone and his downtime. He, yeah, he looks, he looks that's wonderfully. A, that's a Wisconsin town. Right there's there. a glow. There's a glow. Well, he was in Hawaii. Yeah, nine days in Kauai right before you leave your job will, will do you well. And I will say on the food and the ahi wraps in Kauai, just absolutely unbelievable. I can't remember the exact name of the place, but say northeast corner of Kauai coming back from Hanalei Bay there's a little like fish shop fish market and they have a little ahi ahi wrap that you get grilled up a little sesame was there, sauce was there on there col- was there a Culver's no unfortunately not that's too bad this is like anti-Colin food he's talking about fresh fish <laughs> You're right. yeah. this is not, not custardy I'm not sitting down fatness. and ordering anything so it's it's still in that vein I like to move quickly we'll keep it two dollar signs or less on Yelp but no it's delicious Kauai was amazing yeah, that's a good spot. All right. Well, you guided us through 61 episodes. Well, we shouldn't speak too quickly. 60-plus episodes. We'll see how this one turns out. As and- crazy as it is, I'm actually – I think I'm sitting in the exact chair, exact spot that I was sitting in for my very first interview. Nathan Rauschenberg sat across this room in Nitro for me. Greg was in here. I remember writing, like, practice tweets on a Lenovo laptop into Excel. Like, we're literally, literally right here. Practice so, tweets? Yeah, it was pretty wild. It was a little busy, a little, was a little weird. Did they time you on this? Did they, like, throw a topic at you? No, Nathan, like, left a laptop. Yeah, it was like, if Chris Iannetta is... We're campaigning for Chris Iannetta to be in the All-Star game, what are you tweeting? What was the Iannetta hashtag? Was there something clever you came up with? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I think I included framing in the tweet, which is very on-brand. Like an eye emoji? No, there's like, a checklist of things that he did, like, OBP, power. And then I was, like, framing. Let me guess. WRC Plus made it? No, I don't think so. Okay. That's too bad. That came many years later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, we can't thank you enough for all you've done for the podcast and for the Mariners, Colin. And uh, I'm glad we'll be seeing you around 40-plus times is like almost as much as we're here. So I'm glad to see you won't be missing a beat. And most importantly, thanks everybody who's listening to this yes. type of stuff, who supported our work over the years. So we appreciate that, and the show will go on. Well, we hope that you will uh, still we, – we always try to get you on Mariners Magazine when we can, so we hope you can still jump on there every once in a while, maybe a pregame roundtable from time to time. Oh, yeah. So – let us know. I'll be there. Uh, so who knows what this is going to look like moving forward, Jerry. It's just you and me, man. I'm, I'm considering boycotting it unless we can outsource this to the maestro himself. It's, it, it, I, I've seen us try to do this on our own, and it is a challenge. It is a challenge. Do we, do we really want to? Really <laughs> I mean, we did have a false start today. I feel like the recording sessions from your office in Peoria, Jerry, were pretty flawless with me pressing the red button. Right? That, that is true. And then that emailing things. It isn't a complicated endeavor, but there is that time that you were hanging outside of his office for like 45 minutes. Not my fault. <laughs> totally Jerry's fault. <laughs> Most things are. Yeah. <laughs> Most things are. It's, it's one of those times in life where like Jerry comes out of his office with like the whole caravan, right? Like Hollander and everybody else, McKay, all those guys. And I'm literally sitting on the floor with the equipment, which means like a couple of microphones, laptop, a box of cables. And Jerry's like sweating, like he's sweating in shorts and a t-shirt. Like I don't know what calisthenics were going on during this meeting. <laughs> and he looks at me and he goes, "Oh man, 
How long you been here for? Ah, uh, nah. <laughs> He's like, this is now, right? I'm like, ah. Uh, you want to take a rain check? Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, that's totally fine. Totally fine. No problem whatsoever. But Jerry, Colin and I were actually discussing this before you came in here. That's happened like one time. Mm-hmm. Adjustable. I'm like, ready. That's pretty impressive, man. Like it's pretty good. Yeah, I, I remember now the day that you of which you speak. You remember this? Yeah, because you know in the mornings I come in in spring training. I generally get a run or a workout in, and, and, go right and then into I have a to <laughs> then I have to cool off. So on this particular day, I said, well, "Why don't we cool off over a meeting?" And, <laughs> and I didn't realize we had the early day. Well, it was perfectly fine. And in all seriousness, to whiff on one out of sixty-one as a major league general manager is amazing. So kudos to you. So this is the, like the second time in baseball history there has been a sixty-one with an asterisk. Hey. So good for you. We'll need to come Nicely back. Nicely done. One more and time. that was Stump JD. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's move on to some uh, – we kind of expected this to be a, a little bit of a more quiet offseason for your ball club, and yet some really exciting, very cool news came out a while ago, and that is you signed Evan White to a six-year extension with multiple club options. This is a guy who's a top 100 prospect. He's a, uh, essentially a top five prospect within your own organization, a former first-round draft pick. Tell us why this was a good idea right now for a guy that obviously you think the world of. Uh, we really do. And, and uh, this is something we started talking about late summer, you know, both in, in terms of Evan personally and just in general as a, as a thought process in, in attacking roster building and kind of stabilizing our club moving forward. This is something that's not too dissimilar. The, the price points are different, but not too dissimilar from what the Cleveland Indians did when I was coming through the system and, and reached the big leagues in the early 90s. And, and they did this with a number of young players, guys like Carlos Baerga and Sandy Alomar and Jim Tomey and Charles Nagy, you know, started tying up young players. And, and I think it was a, a, a transformational moment in Indians history where after so many years of, of struggle, not reaching postseason, seeing players come and go once they've you know run their tenure and were on the doorstep of free agency. And in that early 90s, they just changed the narrative by signing a lot of these young players and making them a part of the fabric of what they were doing. And, and it worked. And, and then they went off and dominated a division for about a decade. And we thought something similar was possible here. And, you know, we started with Evan because we felt like he was the right person. You know, he's a wonderful human being. He cares about the Mariners. uh, He wants to be here. Uh, An athletic first baseman who we know can defend, we know can run, we know does all the small things, and we believe in his bat. You know, it's maybe the thing that is generally lost on the, the, I guess, the third parties is Evan White can hit. And we're starting to see power flourish, but he's always been a hitter and he's always gotten on base. Couple that with all the other skills, and we felt like it was a really solid place to start building our, our future club and adding him to the young players that have already made their way to Seattle, guys like Justice and Justin Dunn and J.P. Crawford, etc. And this next wave, which includes guys like Evan White and Logan Gilbert and Jared Kelnick and Cal Raleigh, we, we feel like this is the where it starts to, to really move forward. And don't be surprised if, this is, if you see something like this again in the not-too-distant future because it's something we are making part of our plan moving forward. He essentially has never played in AAA. He played there on a fill-in basis for just literally a handful of games. But he's really never played above AA. Because of this extension, does this mean that we expect to see him on opening day at first base for the Mariners? Or do you want to get him AAA time? I think probably closer to the former. We're we're open-minded to what comes. Uh, When we agreed to this deal with Evan, it was with the understanding that we were going to do the right thing thing for him developmentally based on what we see in the spring but I can't imagine too many scenarios where Evan would come in and and not justify uh, us putting him out there on opening day as our first baseman and you know that's what we hope happens and and we hope he just takes it and runs with it I've I've long been of the mindset that you know the young players when you give young players opportunity in the big leagues Sometimes it takes no time at all. Sometimes it takes 150, 300 plate appearances. Rarely does it take more than a year, a year and a half. And the sooner we can start to, to, to assimilate these young players to the major league competition, the, the better off we are in the long term because we want to get that experience. And 
Evan is mature enough. He understands uh, the the psychology of the game. He's been one of our most attentive players since the day we signed him. And I feel like he has learned the lessons he's needed to learn in the minor leagues. And there'll be challenges, and I'm sure there'll be ups and downs. But we believe in his talent, and we believe in him as a human and believe that ultimately he'll make this look like a great deal for the Mariners. I'm curious how this works kind of behind the scenes when you pitch this idea to his representation at what point do you actually get to speak with Evan? Not until the deal is agreed upon. Do you speak with him as it's being worked out to convey your excitement? How does, how does this work? Because I'm curious what his, kind of his first words to you were when this was in process or when it was finalized. Well, there's, there's actually two funny stories here. One is toward the tail end of the regular season when we were working through the, the minor league playoffs, ran into Blake Karoski, Evan's agent, in Arkansas. And, you know, he was having dinner with Evan and Evan's now wife uh, as of two days ago. Uh, and, you know, congratulations. A big to the month wife. for him. A huge, huge <laughs> month for them. Uh, ran into to Blake, who then reached out to, to Andy McKay and said, hey, I just telling you, Evan loves being a mayor. If you ever want to talk about a long term extension, he, I'm here. And, and I think it was more tongue-in-cheek just to, just to express to us how much Evan enjoyed the, the program here. And uh, we took him up on it. So th- that was, you know, he made a suggestion, not entirely sure if it was, uh, if it was serious or, or just in passing. And we placed that phone call. And the funny thing is, you know, we were down in Arizona for the general manager meetings in November. And we did two and a half days of industry meetings down in Scottsdale at the Omni. And uh, like it always is, it was it was meeting stacked upon meeting, meeting with a, an agent, meeting with a player. And we ran it into, uh, so that was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And we ran it into uh, our Mariners baseball operations leadership meeting, which we have our department leaders you know, Scott Hunter and amateur scouting, Frankie Thon and international scouting, Tom Allison, who oversees all scouting, Andy McKay, Scott Service, Justin Hollander, etc. We all met in Arizona. We couldn't score the extra rooms at the Omni because they were rolling over. So we shifted over to the Camby, which is uh, in central Phoenix, just across from the Biltmore. And we got over there not realizing, and, and Jack Mossman booked us rooms, took care of everything seamlessly, like Jack does. And uh, we got over there only to realize that it was the, the agents and the Major League Players Association were running their meetings in the same hotel. So we walked into the lobby, and there stood every agent in the business, the Players <laughs> Association, and, and just roughly walked in and say, hi, fellas. Uh, and we were stationed in the room next door to their, <laughs> to their powwow. Uh, and in between putting a glass to the wall to try to figure out what was going on, <laughs> we, we conducted our Mariners meetings. I said that jokingly to the, to the guys with the PA. But, um, you know, we, we went through our meetings for the next couple of days. And on that Friday, I connected with Blake and we just walked around the perimeter of the hotel, talked for about 20 minutes during a, a general break in the action for both of our meeting sessions. I presented him what we were hoping to try to get across. By Monday, we made an offer, and by Friday, we had a deal. It was uh, it was pretty quick. It was a fascinating time. I spoke to Evan for the first time on Monday afternoon. As soon as we made the offer, Evan called himself, and you know, without yet having accepted the offer, but just to to say how much it meant to him that we were doing this, and and uh, you know that we engaged this way, and and such a wonderful guy, he really is. I mean, universally respected by his teammates by the people here with the club, whether, you know, our front office, staff, et cetera. And we couldn't think of a better guy to start this with. And there are many in our system that are that, that are viable long-term pieces to our core. And we felt like Evan was was uh, was the first domino in, in trying to put the, the pieces together for the next 10 years. Along those lines that you just referenced, to get back to a comment you made a few moments ago about this being something that Mariners fans can possibly expect to see happen again and possibly again after that. It's a case-by-case scenario, I'd have to imagine, but are there certain things, certain boxes that you check that let you and the rest of your department know, okay, this guy is a candidate for something like we did with Evan White? What are those boxes to check? 
You know, I did a number of them. One is who who are you as a person? Uh, because it's a it as I said, Evans twenty three is going to be twenty four years old when when well, roughly shortly after the start of next season. He's never played a day above Double A. It takes a lot of maturity to 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 walk into a major league clubhouse with you know potentially nine years and fifty five million dollars in your pocket and still go do the same things that you always do. Not feel pressure. To, to go perform, not feel that, like you have to prove anything to anybody and, and certainly not feel like, all right, I, I, I check that box. Let me just throw it in neutral. You players could go either way. We trust that Evan is, is mature enough and, and emotionally grounded enough to be able to handle that challenge. And, you know, I, as I said, don't be surprised if this is something we, we would love to try this uh, again, as we move ahead, haven't yet determined uh, when that will be, but are, are, and, it, and it requires uh, two sides. You know, a player has to be willing and, and want to be here over that course of time. So there's risk on both sides. You know, there's risk for the club. There's risk for the player. But as long as we share in that risk and everybody does it in a place that they want to be, uh, I think we all wind up, you know, ending on a happy note. And, and I'm certain this one will be that way. There was a, a departure within the organization. Omar Narvaez was one and done with the ball club. You uh executed a deal to send him to Colin, the land of cheese. <laughs> Milwaukee. I mean, mm-hmm. this is this is kind of all coming together for Colin. Uh, so he is now with the Brewers. Uh, of course, he has Monty Grandel gone from the Brewers, so they're needing somebody uh, behind home plate. In exchange, you get a low minor starting pitcher in Adam Hill. You also get uh, a comp draft pick. Uh, let's talk about both, uh, kind of all three phases of this. Omar was here for a year. It seemed as though his defensive abilities uh, certainly improved under Mariners' eyes. And the guy can rake. We know that he's an incredibly uh, gifted hitting catcher. I, I know you must be very happy for what he gave the ball club for that one season. And that's what I told Omar. Uh, he he did do a terrific job for us with with the bat. It was start to finish. He was arguably our best offensive player on the season in terms of the consistency. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. We saw a career-type season in terms of his home run productivity. The way he slugged was significantly different than what anything he had done in the past looked like. Omar's always been a get-on-base guy. He's always been a 270, 280-type hitter. And we feel like that is generally who he is. Uh, I I don't know uh, in regard to uh, what happens to him in Milwaukee. I don't suspect it's going to be harder for him to hit there. <laughs> you know, having having seen the, the ballpark in Milwaukee. But uh, Omar's a great guy. He did fit well on our team. But, you know, as we looked at our offseason and trying to determine how to, to build as much value for this stage of our development. And when I say this stage of our development, we've made no secret about the fact that we are gathering as many assets as we can and putting players in place to, to be as competitive as we can in a window that we think starts in 2021. You know, we've somehow it has been portrayed that we are the world champs of 2021. That's when we think we are going to start looking like a a competitive contending team again. And, you know, and we thought, Omar, that'll be the last year of his club control. Uh, He is coming off a season that, frankly, we thought was likely the the tip of his iceberg. This is I mean, he had a great year. And, you know, with with the defense, we saw an incredible effort on his part in spring training and early in the season, particularly on the framing. And we did see improvement. And, you know, our general thought was that's what gave him the type of value that we were able to cash and and made no, uh, I guess, excuses about it. You know, we, we, we did have Tom Murphy, who's also coming off of a great season. And we had Austin Nola, who once we signed Evan White to the deal we signed Evan to, there was no scenario in which Evan White, Austin Nola, Omar and Tom Murphy all fit on our roster. So if we truly want to give the young players the opportunity to play, then something was going to have to give. And and we felt just as we've been hit in the trade market on Austin, we have been hit on Murph, and we had been hit on Omar. And we felt due to the increasing cost with Omar in terms of salary, that he was was generally the, the most valuable in the marketplace. 
because of the season he was coming off of. And he was also the one who we had the least long-term control over. We determined that that if we were going to cash in one of the the player contracts, that would be it. Was Omar and and what we got back, you know, Adam was a fourth round draft pick with the the New York Mets actually, at a South Carolina big guy who went out and and generally did the things that starting pitcher prospects do. And you know, he still needs to develop his third pitch. And you know, we're going to give him an opportunity. He's likely to start the season in Modesto and continue to build his innings there. And a really undervalued part of the trade for us was that comp draft pick. We, we probably could have, have achieved something in a more, uh, I guess, noteworthy prospect name, someone you may have heard of in the prospect family. But that comp pick does multiple things. One, you know, as of today, it's the 67th pick in the draft. It has a chance to be as high as the 65th pick in the draft, which is no sneeze. That's a real value by itself. It also gives us another nine hundred thousand ish dollars in pool space that we're able to use at any point we want to. So you know we now have the ability with with a top ten pick in the draft with an extra let's call it million dollars in cash flexibility. We have the ability to navigate either the comp or second rounds of this draft in ways we've really never been able to. Having those picks is hugely valuable, particularly when you get the opportunity to buy up, so to speak, and, and, and or buy a player down to your pick. One of the nuances of this most recent collective bargaining agreement is that you have the ability to discuss uh, contractual parameters or bonus size with players before you ever get to the draft pick which used to not be the case. So, you know, using that type of flexibility where we can and the comp pick provides that to us, you can't exceed your your pool. So we needed to go out and, and it, I guess, add on to that pool if we wanted to be creative in the draft space. And that's we determined that to be as valuable to us as any prospect we could have acquired. So can you give us a working example? I think that's really fascinating, especially when you talk about the CBA and the draft, because a lot of that, I think for most fans, is – kind of interesting noise, but tough to fully wrap your head around it. So can you give us an example as to you're sitting in the draft room and the days leading up to you're having conversations with a young player and he wants X amount and you maybe without this trade, am I understanding this correctly, you might not have been able to get him, but now all of a sudden you have close to an extra million that you can put that direction. Is that correct? correctly? So I, I could throw you the names. I'll, I'll choose not to because sure. <laughs> they, now, they now play for other teams. But over the course of the last three or four years, we have consistently tried to effectively navigate the player we liked best to our pick in the second round. You know, And as we try to navigate those players to the second round, inevitably the, the – the turbulence, somebody in the middle, it, because you can't exceed a certain amount of dollars, somebody in the middle is just going to outbid you and, and or just pick the player because they can do that too. But most teams in the top 7,500 picks in the draft are reticent to pick a player unless they already understand that the player is going to sign the deal. You, you don't want to get left holding the bag with a top 100 pick, particularly in the 2020 draft, which we think is going to be maybe one of the two most – talent-laden drafts in the last 25 years. I mean, it's a, this is a really good draft group. So using that money, for instance, in, in 2018, we take Logan Gilbert with, the, with our first pick, which was the 14th pick in the draft. You know, as we're preparing for our second round pick, we are fully engaged on five different phone lines with, I mean, it's almost Jerry Maguire-ish. We've got different agents on the phone lines and we're trying to buy players. And we had one player in specific that we were trying to navigate to our pick. And effectively, we promised him as much money as we could, which was we gave him all of the the second pick slot and we promised him the slot from our third pick which then would have resulted in us having effectively having to punt our third pick by taking someone who didn't otherwise belong in that space in the draft and then sign them for a very small uh, or nominal bonus to create the space and what this pick does is allow us it allows us just to take the best player each time because now we have a million dollars in flexibility to navigate around that pick. Ms. you're punting a third pick, a third round pick. That's a big pick. That's Kyle Seager. Yeah, that's Kyle. Well, and, and yours truly. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> 
they're, they're, I mean, the third round is a very, it's, it's, you know, third round is John Olerud. It's Kyle Seeger. It's, I mean, you get real talent in the third round, those top 100 picks. We did not want to be in a position to not take the best players and, but, but still wanting to use the, the nuance of the draft to, to buy up or buy a player down if we could. Fascinating. In that vein, I mean, a guy that recently is back on radars, you know, not speaking to the negotiations beforehand, but more so the result of it. Uh, Sam Carlson's a guy that signed in second round pick, right? Correct. Signed for what, $2 million way over the slot. And you're able to go to a guy like that and go, you know, maybe you don't want to go to college. Maybe you want to come play pro ball. And now the Mariners have Sam Carlson in their organization and staring down a, a very interesting 2020, excuse me. And that, you know, we're first we're thrilled that Sam's coming back. But that is a by itself is a really unique time, the 2017 draft, because we did overpay Sam by something in the neighborhood of eight hundred thousand ish dollars to get to our pick. He got to our pick. You know, Sam was widely considered a top twenty-five prospect in that draft. So we used the leverage of of, of nothing more than we had a couple of, I guess, a couple of dollars in our pocket. We took seniors later in the top ten rounds that that allowed us to to get underslot the player to make up some of the ground on Sam Carlson and the player that we preferred in the third round of the draft was Wyatt Mills, who also happened to be a senior from Gonzaga was a relief pitcher and as a result of like that combination of events wasn't widely scouted so you know we had we trusted the makeup we we, we actually trusted even more now that Wyatt's in the system, trusted the makeup, trusted the player. We had seen him, we had cross-checked him, and we had our, our scouting director in to see Wyatt, which I bet made us the only team like that in baseball. So we felt an absolute comfort taking Wyatt Mills as a third-round talent, and it just happened to be beneficial to, to us and to Sam Carlson that he was also a senior. So we were able to, to navigate those waters because the player we liked happen to be there. Uh, we don't want to be in a position where, you know, if we're in that top 100 again and and we have that type of situation, uh, like happened to us in 2018, frankly, like happened to us last year, we want to be able to, to navigate that player toward us if we can, if we possibly can. Hey, since Sam came up, uh, this is a young man that a pretty dialed in Mariners fans uh, have been following his progression, his recovery from Tommy John. Uh, can you tell us what the outlook would appear to be for 2020 for Sam? You know, Sam, first of all, the, to, to go through what he's gone through, he's thrown three innings as a pro after being drafted in June of 2017. And that's a long grind for anybody. I mean, to put it in, to put it in perspective, he was drafted after Evan, right? He, correct. He was the second round pick. So after think Evan, about yeah. what's happening to Evan. Now, granted, a college guy compared to Sam, a high school guy, but still what they've been able to do in that time, to your point. That's, it, is, it is, at this point, barring injury, virtually certain that Evan will play in the big leagues this year. And, and you know, Sam is going to come back, and we're hoping that he can, you know, see full season A-ball. We'd like that to be from the start, but we don't want to push him. Uh, we didn't push him at the end. He was throwing well in Peoria before he went home uh, for, the, for the break. And since he's come back, he looks great. I know just having seen him here at our leadership summit, he was in, first of all, he's in great shape. When, when you see Sam walk in a room, you, yeah, it's not hard to see why the scouts leader, were right? intrigued. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he looks like a guy, and he's, he's mature. He works hard. He's been through a lot. And, you know, I'm excited to see where it goes from here because it is electric stuff when he's healthy, and, and we get a chance to see now the, the nearest version to that that we've ever seen. You've added Carl Edwards Jr. to your bullpen. Kind of a up-and-down season last year with the Cubs. Uh, option down early. Had some mechanical issues, some health issues. Uh, but has had a track record of success in the later innings. Uh, what made him a good fit for the Mariners? You know, 2015, I, b- I believe, when, when C.J. was called up. I, I've, I've been told he is C.J. Uh, I asked him, do you go by oh. C.J. or Carl? And Because uh, we, in, in, as opposing organizations, when he was going through prospect, yeah. uh, you know, I, I guess stages, he was always referenced as C.J. Edwards. And, you know, I asked him the night that we signed him, I said, I said do you prefer to go by Carl or C.J.? You know, I saw C.J. I'm Carl on paper. Yeah, I've, I've, I had no, I had no idea that he goes by. I mean, it's yeah. always 
on paper. <laughs> yep, CJ, uh, <laughs> Carl Jr. Written. But, you know, see, he is uh, from 2015 to 18, one of the highest strikeout pitchers in all of uh, Major League Baseball. I think 12th overall among all big league relievers in strikeout rate. Uh, he still maintains that, that strikeout ability. Obviously, 2019, not a very good season for him, which is why we were able to get him. And, you know, it's a maybe that 16-17 season or 16-17-18, he was as good a setup guy for a premium team pitching in a leverage role for the Cubs that, as you were going to find, was worth about a win and a half a year in, in war between, I think, 17 and 18 on average, which also placed him in a, in a different level of pitcher. It's hard to, to generate that type of war value as a, as a bullpen guy. There aren't very many of them. And he still is going to pitch this year at just 28 years old. His fastball reaches into the upper 90s. He's got elite spin on his breaking ball. You know, and he's never been a guy that, that goes out there and just drills the strike zone. He is a stuff pitcher. And, you know, we believe that there are a few adjustments that we can help him make that will get him back to being more consistent with that stuff. Uh, great reviews on his makeup. He's a fun, engaging guy on the telephone. And uh, we're really looking forward to having him here. Uh, among the, the many things that have happened this offseason, one of the things we were looking forward to most is what you see it with CJ is, is bounce-back candidates who have a chance to be a part of what we're doing as we move forward, which we believe he does. How about another bounce-back candidate, Kendall Graveman? Seven games last year, seven starts, coming off of Tommy John. Mariners fans, many are familiar with him during his time in the division with the Athletics. What does he bring to the Mariners? Dif- something different than what we have. You know, I, I, I think, you know, Kendall, similarly, he's going to start next year at 29 years old. Uh, for a three-year stretch there with Oakland, he was about as league average a major league starter as you can find with a heavy sinker in the low mid-90s with good strike throwing ability, competitive makeup. There were a lot of elements of, of what Kendall does that we really liked. We had tried to acquire him multiple times before uh, when he was healthy with the A's and we were never able to quite get there. And when we had the opportunity to, to delve into free agency this year, he was one of the first calls we made as we were looking for or to fill those spots in our rotation. And one of our goals, or I shouldn't say one of them, but maybe a, a primary goal of ours was looking to find starters in their 20s who had a chance to be part of our group moving forward. And, you know, the deal we did with Kendall is a one-year deal with an option. Uh, He is a guy that comes with two years of control. Similarly, Carl Edwards or CJ comes with with multiple years of control. And our goal was to find players who could be part of what we're doing rather than just hiring mercenaries. And knowing that this is very much a building block year for us, if you bring in veteran players who have expectation of something that we can't deliver right now, you're going to lose them. But if you, meaning emotionally, you're going to lose them. If you bring in young, hungry players or players on the rebound from injury or down seasons, that that lends to an energetic, hungry environment. And that's what we're trying to create. And we just felt like Kendall and, and, and CJ provided that for us. And the difference for, for Kendall is, and I, and I don't want to stir up uh, the the shivers from last year's uh, memory banks, but the first half of last year, our defense was roughly atrocious. You know, it, we were we were a terrible defensive team, and and uh, we had we had the left side of our infield really from the first day of the season because of the absence of Kyle Seager, and and uh, now it's our our infield defense it was the struggles of Domingo and and left and then ultimately resulted in him moving to right it was the struggles with Malix and center field mostly because I think he was putting too much pressure on himself and he got a late start to the season we just had a lot of wonkiness going on around our our defensive positioning we feel like by the second half of last year that the numbers will tell you we were actually one of the better teams in the league particularly on infield defense Credit to Perry Hill and all he's done. So as we were going through the, the process of trying to identify 
who the right fits for us pitcher wise might be, we actually looked at our defense. You know, it, it, we've talked about this before. We could go to the market and try to find big strapping guys who strike them all out and are in their 20s and they go for roughly $325 million. <laughs> or we could try to find someone who had a strong propensity to get them to hit the ball on the ground and take advantage of what we think is a vastly improved infield defense with J.P. Crawford, with Evan White, with Kyle Seeger healthy. And, and you know that's what we feel like Kendall brings to the table is that nuance. You have uh, dipped your toes in the Rule 5 draft again at the Winter Meetings, uh, something that you have described to us in previous years' wheelhouses as the most electrifying and exhilarating time to be a general manager <laughs> is the Rule 5 draft, right? T- the whole year builds up to this. Yeah, it's a, when I don't have a pillow pulled over my head. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, I do think the the <laughs> – the Rule 5 draft is... Uh, Tell Johan that. It's, the Rule 5 draft is... I mean, if you date back to the mid-50s, you know, Roberto Clemente as a Rule 5 draft pick, you know, the, the great Johan Santana, who, who was a multiple-time Cy Young Award winner, was a Rule 5 draft pick. Kelly Gruber. I could go on with guys who've really kind of been home runs, as a, or even in more recent memory, Brad Keller with the Royals, really nice pickup in the Rule 5. So there, there is the Rule Five is productive. You know, our own Brandon Brennan came yeah. from the Rule Five last year, and a rare keeper for the entire season. And uh, we went in to last year's draft looking for someone who had the ability to uh, st- help stabilize a really difficult bullpen to to navigate last year because we had so many out of options players or veterans on on guaranteed contracts to start the season. We went into this year's draft pure and simple looking for the highest upside we could find. Uh, and this was we, just go and try to hit a grand slam. Who is the best arm in, in the Rule 5 group? We didn't think that we could carry a position player by virtue of the way our 13-man position player group looks today. Uh, they're all young players we want to play or players that we've committed to on, on longer contracts, particularly Kyle. Uh, Johan Ramirez is – a big, big arm. I mean, it's a fastball that gets up to 101, uh, averages about 96 miles an hour. He really took a big step forward in the second half of the season in terms of finding consistency. And you won't see it in his strike throwing numbers. It's uh, his, his, I guess, cross to bear is that he has not been a particularly good strike thrower. And we feel like we can help that to a degree. Whether we can help that as he transitions to the major leagues in and we are able to to kind of help him across that bridge for 162 games remains to be seen. But it, I don't think there was any argument in our group that he was the most talented player in the Rule 5 draft in terms of raw physical stuff. It, we, From what we've been told, it is a super energetic cheer for everybody around him teammate who just wants to be at the ballpark every day. And we thought we'd take our chance to hit a grand slam. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. It's been a little time off, but I think you are ready for a fairly ridiculous. Eh, it's not that bad. Stump JD. Like, there's no way you're going to get it. I say call no keep. No. <laughs> like, this is this is very niche, which the best Stump JDs are. Um, you know, there wasn't like a whole lot of. Normally, I try to go topical with these, you know, like something like if we're playing a certain opponent or Hall of Fame weekend. Uh, so, this is just total random grab bag here. Um, this uh, Stump JD is going to surround all-star game starts. Starts. Okay. Jerry, can you name the first player voted as an all-star game starter at three different positions? Wow. Thank you. Thank three you. different Thank you. positions. Thank you. I'm going to go with Pete Rose. No. Can I get a little love for the, the effort there, though? Pete Rose? No. I mean, you see, that seemed like league average effort. I don't know if that was any different than your normal effort. I'll applaud your always constant effort, Jerry. All right. So it's not Pete Rose. It's not Pete uh, Rose. This, this stuns me. So it, it predates Pete Rose. That's correct. Hmm. Three positions. And he has to be a starter. He has to a start starter. the All-Star game at three different positions. Three different positions. There are a number of hints I can give you. I'm going to go with Joe Torrey. No. Duh. Three different positions. 
could this be three different outfield positions? Where he's no, that would be sneaky. Actually, only one of them is an outfield position. Because I feel like that's some of what you pull from time to time. No, it absolutely is. is. No, you know the game. We've done this sixty times. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, 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 I'm left holding the bag. Yeah, I know this is tough. I would have no. Okay, if you want to. Oh, but you're looking everything up, man. I'm trying. Oh, this, I don't even know how to, to look it up. I know this is not an easy thing to look up. Um, I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give the hint that I, th- I'm the most eager to give because I think you'll just jump on it immediately as a collector. You can make the case that this Hall of Famer has the most beautiful signature in the history of baseball, and it's not Tom Seaver. <laughs> Tom does have a good signature, I will say. The most beautiful signature in the history of baseball. I mean, like this is obviously a very debatable thing, but like I think when you talk about the most beautiful signatures on a baseball in baseball history, this guy is without question in the top five, and I think for the majority of people would be number one. Like he's at least the first guy that I would think of. The first guy that you would think of. Yeah. He has Pacific Northwest roots. Pacific well, that changes my whole Pacific Northwest roots. Yeah. Hall of Famer, beautiful signature. I, and for me, like the beautiful signature guy is Ted Williams. That would, I think an awesome signature. No, clearly not your guy, but that's not the answer. Is it? Clearly not Pacific Northwest roots. Uh, <laughs> I just Stating the obvious, as I said. Left field, third base, and first base are the positions. Third base. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm baffled. I got nothing for you. O'Keefe, have you come any farther on this? Harmon Killebrew? I like, like how I said that just like so like I, I haven't up, like, I haven't looked this up. <laughs> yeah. Signatures yeah. I was like maybe Pacific Northwest roots. I don't know. Just, I'm going <laughs> off of a signature that looks good. Yeah, Harmon Killebrew. That's awesome. I, I did not know that. And it, it actually, the, the Pete Rose thing, I thought I had one there. Man, if, I know. That would have been very impressive. Uh, but instead, I actually think Pete Rose was four. Was he, he was, really? Yeah, because he was, I believe, also a second baseman on the, the, the all-star roll call. Second base, left field, third base, first base. Well. However, I could be wrong. I figured after a, a bit of a layoff, you needed a real, like I couldn't do a, I couldn't do just a layup here or, or a gimme. Although I will say, sometimes I've I've thought there's no way you're going to get him, and you get him right away. So I, you're you're very unpredictable in stump JD. Jerry. I'm that way. Yeah. I'm predictable in life, really. And okay. I do agree that Harmon Kilbrew has a it's a beautiful. It stage. is. It's the thing it of is. beauty. It really is. Uh, let's get to a. Uh, we've got time for a listener question. This comes from uh, Colton Swanson, which is a great baseball name, by the way, in Buckley, Washington. Uh, how in depth do the pitchers get? into Rapsodo data, Jerry. Do they read into each part of the data, or are the coaches there to interpret it for them? Thank you in advance. Uh, purely case by case. So we, we have some pitchers that are more engaged in the, the actual data. Um, more often than not, that runs through Trent Blank, who is our, our, our coordinator of pitching strategy right now. Uh, Brian DeLunis, who this is an area of strength for him. This is also something of an area of expertise for for Paul Davis. So you know, with the the as we collect the, the numbers from from the Rapsodo, the goal is to put it in a digestible format with some type of instruction, physical instruction, instead of just showing pitchers numbers. Uh, there are a couple of guys who've gone out and invested in their own Rapsodo, and, and they now have a, a better understanding of, of kind of how to read that data. But uh, generally speaking, we think there's value in taking it and, and chopping it up a little bit before we hand it to a player and try to make sure that it's not just raw numbers, that there's something physical attached to it. I probably should have led with this. Not everybody is as uh, dialed in as Colton Swanson is. In 140 characters or less, can you tell us what is a Rapsodo? So a Rapsodo, it it runs in conjunction for us. We have three things that we use. We use Edgertronic cameras, we use Rapsodos, and we use TrackMan devices to help us identify, in, in Rapsodo's case, the spin of the ball. You know, what is the spin of the ball? What is the axis it's moving on? So when we're trying to adjust the uh, pitchers' repertoires or the way they use their pitches or we're trying to go through pitch development, either give them a pitch or improve one, 
the Rapsoda is the first place we go. And what we're, what we're doing is effectively modeling a pitch using, using the data to, to show us the way. And I know just chatting, went down to the HBC camp once again this year and had the chance to chat with uh, George Kirby, Brandon Williamson, and they're walking through, you know, not only are they, you know, putting in time in the weight room, but also meeting with some of the pitching guys to go, you know, here's what your repertoire looks like. Here's what the data behind your repertoire looks like. And of course, for those guys, it's not just, here's what you need to be able to do to dominate the Northwest League or, you know, dominate the Sally League. It's, you know, here's what your stuff looks like and here's how it could play against major leaguers. So yeah, they're going through that type of data and I'm sure it's different for everybody, but you know, even just talking to a couple guys from Logan to Brandon, uh, George a little bit, it's, it's interesting how many of them are very in tune with, you know, modern pitching philosophy as far as tunneling, pitch shapes, pitch design, they call it, uh, and that type of thing. Had, had George gotten over those eight walks by the time? You'd seen him. Was it, I, mean, I think a calendar year. I think it was oh. eight walks. I think I'm, I'm, I'm for my notes here. It was funny. I did ask him. Yeah, what was he most proud of? He's like, well, I didn't walk anybody this year. So he's very. It is. He can hang his head on it. It's nice. But yeah, it's yeah. Just talking to those guys. I mean, those. And I mean, to the going back to the the comp pick. I mean, I know Isaiah didn't pick, didn't pitch this year, but you're looking at a guy that you know for frame of reference. Not to say MLB Pipeline is the you know, be all and end all for prospect ranking, but they have Isaiah Campbell slotted in ahead of a guy like Noel Viamarte. Uh, so, you, and one spot behind Kyle Lewis. So, when you're wondering, huh, what do the Mariners get back for Omar Narvaez? Well, you know, probably a top 10 system prospect. Um, but yeah, be interesting to watch that group, whether it's in West Virginia or wherever else they end up next year. No doubt about that. Well, this is our final wheelhouse of uh, the O'Keefe era and of 2019. A reminder that the uh, single game tickets are on sale now, opening day. One of nine fireworks nights, a number of big matchups for uh, Mariners baseball in 2020. Makes a fantastic holiday gift. Of course, uh, the Mariners are doing something different this year. It's pretty exciting with uh, Mariners Flex memberships in return in regards to season tickets. Uh, you can choose the games. You choose the number of seats. You get more baseball for your money. So a, a pretty cool new look at season tickets. You can go to Mariners.com slash flex for more details on that. So, uh, Jerry, thank you as always for your time. Colin. Uh, it's been fun, man. Thanks for all your help with this and getting this going and making it as uh, awesome as it has been. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Like I said at the beginning, uh, you know, thanks to everybody for listening to us. It's funny. I'm just pulling up, seeing what countries we're in. It's like, of course, we're big in the United States, Canada, but it's like we have multiple listeners in Australia, Japan, New Zealand, Singapore, Saudi Arabia, Ireland. So it's just pretty crazy how how far we're able to push Mariners baseball out to. And I hear all the time... Uh, from people who aren't even fans of Mariners baseball, who enjoy getting the perspective of a general manager and how the game works and how we can talk about the game. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to you guys for taking up this crazy idea and and running with it. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Jerry, we'll see you again in 2020. We're going to miss you, Maestro. Thanks, guys. Go in. this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can conquer it i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road any road the steeper the better because my all-new santa fe is available with h-track all-wheel drive so i can hit the trail without a worry in the world Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.